morning, everyone. I mean, really, let's be honest. It's the afternoon. We're just pretending like it's not, but it is. Uh, welcome to North Park. My name is Joel Miles. I'm one of the pastors here at North Park, and it's my great privilege to be here to, to preach, to proclaim God's word. Uh, this morning, as Pastor Trish just mentioned, we are beginning a new series titled Through Deep Waters. It's a three-week series in which we're going to be kind of tracing the theme of God's salvation of his people through water. Actually, a theme that you see happen throughout the scripture. It's not just something that he does here. It takes him through the Jordan, though we're not going to look at that passage specifically. But it only takes him through here, but he also points forward uh, throughout his history and says, I will do this again. I will perform a, a new exodus in an even greater way, and that is the one that, G- that Jesus himself has accomplished for us. And so we're going to trace this theme through the scriptures, and it will culminate in our baptism service on November 19th. As you could probably guess, that is very intentional. It is very intentional that we are doing a series called Through Deep Waters, leading up to a service where we will be blessed to see some brothers and some sisters publicly proclaim their faith and trust in God and enter into the waters of baptism and come out the other side, which symbolizes God's salvation of us, taking us from death to life through Jesus Christ. This is very intentional. But I bring it up right now because I want to just say from the get-go that this is not just a series that is for those who have already planned on being baptized on November 19th. This is a series for us all. Because if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you would not call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, let me just say, first of all, that we are so glad that you are with us here today. We really are. We hope that you feel welcomed among us. We hope that we can care for you and love you in the ways that we have been loved by Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that this series is in part for you. We hope that in being here, you would see that there is a God who is over this world and who loves you, who has offered to take you through deep waters, to take you from death to life through Jesus Christ. So if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would just ask you to be open that maybe God brought you here for a reason, because he wants you to know how much he has done for you through Jesus and how much he cares for you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I also want to say that this series is for you as well, because we constantly need to be reminded of this central work that God has done for us, this central work that helps us understand who God is. Who is the God that we serve? It is the one who is so powerful and so loving that he takes his people, even his people who have rejected him, who don't trust him, he takes them from death to life. He is the one who can take us through deep waters, and that is the God that we follow. And he can do it because he himself was willing to enter into the waters of death for us, to come out the other side in victory over death, as, as Jordan was praying, so that sin and death would not have the final word. That, in many ways, is what I want us to be focusing on these next few weeks, and because of that, it is for all of us, for those who have not heard and for those who have heard. And I also just want to say to you that if you have not been baptized, 
Even if you have not planned on being baptized on November 19th, we want you to start thinking about maybe you should. We will be opening up those waters actually to others to come forward that day to be baptized because we want to recognize and celebrate what our God has done for us. So maybe we celebrate that today by looking at God's salvation with people at the Red Sea, but also in the ways that it points forward to what Jesus has done. So let me pray first, and then we can dive in. So please pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you, God, that as we'll talk about today, God, he was willing to be submerged into death, into suffering for us to bear our sin, to bear our pain on himself so that he could defeat it and offer it to us. May we know that so firmly. I want to pray for those who are here, Lord, right now who don't know you. I ask, God, in your mercy and your grace, would you speak? I ask that in no way right now, Lord, would this be about us, would it be about North Park. May it please, Father, be about your son, be about Jesus Christ and what he has done. May your spirit speak Please, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so as we begin here, I actually want to start not by looking at Exodus, but just by kind of dipping back into Genesis for a moment in order to try to explain how God's people in the Old Testament fit into God's plan and his work of salvation for the world. Now, as we do so, I just want to quickly preface this by saying that it may be easy to think that as I'm explaining things, that I'm making like veiled or even specific comments on the current war in ways that can be construed either positively or negatively. That is not my purpose right now. That's not what I'm doing. I'm specifically right now seeking to help us understand how God's people in the Old Testament fit into the story of the world and God's work of salvation. I want us to grasp Why did God choose a people? How do they fit into God's work? For only really in us understanding God's choice of Israel in the Old Testament and their purpose can we actually grasp the significance today of Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. How does this actually apply to us? Well, we need to understand what was the purpose of God's people in the Old Testament. So in the new year, in 2024, we're actually going to dive back into the book of Genesis, Okay, so as we start in January, we're going to go from chapter 5 of Genesis through 12.3. But I want to look at those final three verses right now because they are the first text that we see in the Bible of God's choice of Abraham's family and of their purpose. Okay, so here's what it says in Genesis 1 through 3. This is, this is really significant for we understand all of the Bible, but it says this, the Lord said to Abram, whom he later renames Abraham, he does that a lot in Genesis, just so you know. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, I want us to see what's going on here. Because when you're reading through the book of Genesis, these verses pretty much come out of nowhere, okay? What what I mean is if you start going through Genesis, you're going to find it about Noah, about the Tower of Babel, but at this moment, you know nothing about Abram. It's just like he just pops up out of nowhere. All we really know when we read these verses is that God has kind of chosen him and chosen him so that he would bless him. But okay, notice that it's not merely that God has chosen Abram just to bless him, 
to make his name great, to make him into a great nation. It is also so that through him, as verse 3 explains, all peoples of the earth would be blessed. In fact, the way that it's written in the Hebrew, it's as if that's the whole purpose. God is actually setting aside these people, moving towards so that everyone would be blessed through them. And what that really means is that Abram and his line is chosen by God, not just for their own sake, for their own privilege, but so that through them, they would expand that blessing throughout the world. They were set apart for the sake of bearing responsibility for the world. In fact, it's really interesting for us. We just went through the early parts of Genesis, right? We looked at Adam and Eve. If you remember, what I tried to show you looking at Adam and Eve is that Adam and Eve are created by God and placed in the garden with a mission, with a commission from God to Edenize creation. That is kind of being repeated here. God is setting aside a people for the sake of the world. This is absolutely in line with the rest of the Old Testament and how the people of God are talked about. They are God's people for the sake of the world. They are to be a royal priesthood, a nation that acts like a priest to the world. And what is a priest? It is that which mediates God's presence to others. They were to be a nation that would mediate God's goodness and grace and love and justice to the rest of the world. And this is really why God gave them a law, because he was calling on them to be his holy people who would display his ways to the world, to basically be a picture of what humanity and creation was always meant to be, to embody God's ways. Okay, why this is so important to grasp is because it can be very easy when we think about God's people in the Old Testament, and really just in the Bible in general, even today when we think about the church, it can be easy to think about it as favoritism, as pure privilege, as God just kind of having his preferences. And that's actually how, if you look at the history of God's people in the Bible, that's how it often was thought of that God had his favorites who he had chosen to purely bless over and against others. But when we think that way, not only do we completely misunderstand the story of the scriptures, but we end up having an extremely difficult time explaining why the lives of the people of God are usually full of so much pain and suffering. Like think about some of the most significant people in the Bible. Those whom we just know, God set them aside. Think about Joseph, chosen by God. But if he's chosen by God, why was he sold into slavery? Why was he framed and then left in prison and forgotten even when he blessed others? Why did God's chosen king, David, spend so much of his life running from oppressors and writing psalms that so many of us can associate with today when he cries out, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Why did the prophets endure so much ridicule and difficulty, so much so that in the New Testament, Jesus can rebuke the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, which one of the prophets did your fathers not kill? Because it was such a common thing to be God's people and yet go through suffering. Why did Jesus have to die? And why? Why did the Israelites... God's chosen people of the Old Testament spend 400 years enslaved. Well, the reason seems to be, at least in part, that God's people are not blessed by God merely for their own sake. 
They're not chosen by God to be his favorites. They're rather chosen and blessed by God so that they might show the world how loving and gracious God is. They are set aside to bear the responsibility of showing the world who God is. And that means that often they are thrust into the experiences of so many in the world. They are thrust into the pain and suffering of the world so that they could show that there is a God who cares for those who go through such things. That there is a God who cares for the oppressed, who cares for the downtrodden, and who offers to save us and make things right to pull this world out of its pain and suffering and sinfulness. And that, in many ways, is what we see happen in the book of Exodus. God's people, at the beginning, as it says, they are thrown into slavery. And Moses, in chapter 5 of Exodus, actually asks God, why? He basically asks the same question I just asked. Why has this trouble come upon us? Why are you taking your people through it? But God has an answer for him. And he gives it in Exodus chapter 6 and basically explains that the reason is so that they might be saved by God and thus come to truly know God as the Lord, as Yahweh, the one who saves. So this is actually what he says then, okay? Exodus chapter 6, we'll have it up here. He says, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, or by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. Yes, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And okay, these words are so important for grasping the Exodus. Because what God is saying is that through God's salvation of his people from slavery and death under the hand of of Egypt, they will fully come to know who their God is, or more fully at least, that they will come to know Yahweh. And we need to understand this really well, because when God says here that by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them, what he does not mean is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know that God's personal name was Yahweh or the Lord, which, by the way, if you're reading through the Bible and you ever see the Lord in all caps, okay, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is like a shortened form of God saying, I am that I am. It's that kind of condensed. That's his personal name. If you ever see where it says Lord and it's like lowercase letters, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. We just love making things confusing, so we just do that, okay? But, all, but, but Lord in all caps is Yahweh. That's God's name. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did know that name. They actually used it many times. So God's point here is not that all of a sudden people are going to know that he has the name, which is Yahweh, I am that I am. His point is rather that just knowing the name isn't enough. Yes, the patriarchs knew the name, but they did not fully know what he was like. They didn't know how glorious and wonderful and just and holy and forgiving and saving God is. But now, through God's salvation, 
of these enslaved people, when he takes them out of oppression, when he rescues them out of death, he will reveal to his people not just his name, but his character. Not just his name, but his glory. For through this act, they will come to see their God from now on as Yahweh, our God, who brought us out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And what this then means is that Israel's salvation out of slavery, okay, the story of the Exodus, God taking his people through deep waters and saving them as his own, is not just any story in the Bible. In fact, it's not even a story that we can kind of hold in our minds alongside other stories in the Old Testament of God saving his people, such as like Daniel in the lion's den or even David and Goliath. Because as remarkable or important as those other stories are, they absolutely pale in comparison to the significance of God's salvation of the Israelites out of Egypt through the waters. For that salvation... The one we are looking at today, God taking his people through the deep waters, from slavery to freedom, from death to life, from Pharaoh to the Lord. This is the paradigmatic salvation through which his people were not only to understand themselves, but their God. This is the story that sets the stage for how we are to conceive of God's people and their identity, but also the identity of Yahweh. In fact, this is why when, it, when you go to the Old Testament law, okay, to all the commands that God's people were to obey, starting with the Ten Commandments, but moving through all the laws of how they were to act, to treat others, to care for the sojourner, for the oppressed, for the widow and the orphan, and so on. All of those laws, if you read through the entire Old Testament law, which I highly doubt anyone is actually going to take me up on that, but if you were to do that, if you were to read through it, you would notice that over and over and over again, Those commands are prefaced constantly with the same thing that begins the Ten Commandments. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, you shall live this way. All of their ethics, all of their laws, their whole way of life that God gave to them so that they would show the world who God is so that we could come to know God's goodness and his love and his grace and his good ways of life. All of it was based on this act of salvation. And that is because the God that God's people in the Old Testament were meant to display is the God who wants to bless the world. They were meant to live in light of the Exodus, in light of God's salvation, because through God blessing them, God wanted to show the world, this is what I want to do for all of you. I want to bless all of you. Thus they were to live in light of God's salvation of them through deep waters so that the world might know that there is a God who wants to take us all through deep waters, who wants to bless us in this way. And so as we turn now to look at the events of Exodus 13 through 14, I want us, when we look at this, to grasp that what we see happening here is not just something that happened back then, but this is meant to show us, to show you and to show me who God truly is and what he has offered to do for us all, for the world. He has offered to take us from slavery to freedom, from Pharaoh to Yahweh, 
from death to life. Because you see, when we look at what happens here, God taking his people through the waters is not just a miracle among the other miracles in the Exodus. It is the final and the ultimate act through which God delivers his people from their oppressors and the threat of death. Because again, let's look at Exodus 13, 17 through 18 here and then compare it with Exodus 14, 5. Okay, so it says in 13, 17 and 18, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Okay, now look at Exodus 14, 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Okay, so I want us to notice what's happening here. Israel's encounter with the Red Sea comes after Pharaoh has supposedly let them go. God had already unleashed the 10 plagues upon Egypt, and in response, Pharaoh had decided to release the Israelites from slavery. But not really, because he changed his mind. And that's important because it shows us that as long as Pharaoh and his army are still around, the threat of being retaken remains. The looming threat of slavery is still there, which means that at this point, Israel's salvation was incomplete. Yes, they have been saved to a degree, but their oppressors, who are so, so, so much stronger than them, had not been fully defeated. And upon changing their minds, they decided to come after the released slaves. And as verse 9 explains to us, they had overtaken Israel, who had camped near the waters. And now look at, the, at verses now 10 through 12, which show us the response of Israel to this. So it says this, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians. And I, I, okay, I'm going to read that again. I just want you for a moment, I want you to imagine being there. Okay? Imagine you just were released 400 years of captivity. You thought you were out, and God took you to the Red Sea, and then you turn around, and as they approached, you looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. How would you feel? They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. I, I just think that response makes so much sense. I know a lot of times when I was younger, I'd read that response, I'd be like, what is the matter with them? Didn't they just see God like unleash those 10 plagues? Don't they just know it's going to be fine? Then I lived more of my life and realized this is what I do. It's like any time God like gets me through a tight spot and then I face the next thing, I'm like, well, I'm done for now. I don't know what I'm going to do. Like we are just like them. But also, again, think about this. They don't know what's about to happen. We know the end of the story, but they don't. They don't know what's coming. And imagine what that would have been like. Imagine being there for generations. You have known, oh, there is a God who has said that you are his people, and yet for generations you've been enslaved. 
These people have been stronger than your God for 400 years. And yeah, we just escaped, but we didn't do anything about that. It wasn't like we were really impressive. We didn't rise up to defeat Egypt and overthrow them. God did some miracles, and Pharaoh basically kind of relented. But now he's back. This person who probably in their minds was maybe like a god had come back to them. They had defied their ruler, and he had now risen up with a vengeance. And there was nowhere to escape to. The only place to go would be into the waters. What else would grip you but absolute terror, complete fear? They were about to die. Or they lived, they were being taken back into slavery, where they would probably be oppressed even worse. That's all they knew. That was the only thing they thought that they knew. What they needed was a salvation that would defeat their enemies so sufficiently, that would save them so absolutely, that it would bring them from death to life. But it is a salvation they didn't think was possible. And this should, I think, show us that when we are looking at God's salvation of his people through deep waters and how it relates to us, we need to make sure that we don't shrink how it applies to us. Really minimize what God is doing here. This is not just God taking Israel through a tough time. This work of God to care for his people so that they might know him and show the world who he is is not a work where God helps them out when the going gets rough or when they're in a tight spot or even God helping them through an extremely difficult circumstance. What we are being shown here is a work of God where God steps in to rescue his people from the darkest horrors that our world can throw at us and that we don't think there's any escape from. This is a work of God where he saves from a situation that doesn't seem difficult. It's impossible. No one would look at this and think that this could be reversed. And at that time, they didn't think the gods were strong enough to do that in any kind of way. That's what we're meant to see here. That is the God that's being put on display. And what that means is not that God doesn't help us when we go through tough things that seem a bit more minor, okay? He does. I'm not saying that God only cares about the major things. What I am saying is that there is nothing too major. There is nothing that is too much. There is nothing that you are facing right now that is too strong, that is too dark, that is too overwhelming. No matter how afraid you are of what is in front of you, it is not so hopeless that God cannot and will not rescue you through it. That is what the Exodus declares to us. That is what we are being shown, even when his people have the sea before them and an unstoppable army behind, even when the terror of death is right on your doorstep, when your greatest of fears come crashing in. Guys, there is a God who makes a way through the sea. There is one who can take us through deep waters. There is one who can take us from death to life. He's like, that, that's the thing, right? That's it right there. That is the ultimate threat. That is the ultimate enemy of us all. That when it comes we don't feel any kind of reverse. A week and a half ago, 
Well, okay, two weeks ago today, I preached a sermon and I talked about that I just have all these different people in my life that are going through really difficult times. And they all were. They were going through really hard times. Three days later, I got a text from one of my best friends in Chicago whose sister-in-law had been killed that, that morning in a car accident. And that's a level of pain and of difficulty from which you're not like, oh, that's hard, I hope you get through it. It's like there's no coming back. You just entered into the darkness. There is no return. Death is the thing that constantly threatens us. It's the enemy of us all, and it's the one that we all face. It's the thing that the Israelites are most scared of. They're actually not afraid of the Egyptians, per se. They're afraid of what the Egyptians can do to them, that they can kill them. Because what they're actually afraid of is death. And slavery is essentially that. It's taking you away from life. In fact, the Egyptians' ability to kill, to take away life, that's what makes them so powerful. They wield the weapon of death. And if they didn't, they would not be terrified. If death were not a threat, the Israelites would not be reacting in this way. But that's true of virtually everything that we face. Why are we so afraid of the many things that face us in life? Sicknesses, aging, armies, depression, natural disasters, car accidents. All these things are terrifying because they threaten to take our lives away. Because they threaten death. That is the thing that drives our fears most acutely. And it's the thing that no matter what we do, we cannot escape it. No matter how we live our lives, no matter how safe we think we are, no matter what we do, eventually it will come for us. Eventually it will back us into a corner where we're no longer strong enough to fight the battles, to fight what is before us. All we will have left is to slip into the deep waters. All we will have left is death. Because that's actually what the waters represent here. Okay, so again, we just went through the early parts of Genesis. Think about how did God create the world? He brought things out of water. To go back into the waters is to go into decreation. It's to go into the darkness. God created the world through bringing things out of the water, so to go back into it is to enter in to that which is not God. It's to go into death. And I know for some of you this morning, you are staring at those waters today. Perhaps because of age, perhaps because of sickness, perhaps because of the ongoing wars all over the world. There's anxiety and fear that you feel of what could this actually mean for our world. Perhaps because of sadness and depression. Perhaps because one of your loved ones has either recently waded into those waters or standing at its shores and you know the tide is rising. You know it's coming. And like the Israelites, that fear, that terror is just pressing in upon you. But whether you feel it right now or you're ignoring it or suppressing it, whether we realize it or not, we all live in the shadow of the deep waters. We all stand on its shores our entire lives. 
And the constant threat of death is why the world is the way that it is. It's why we so often feel like we need to live our lives for ourselves because we only have so much time here. It's why things like consumerism or pleasure have come to be so important for us. It's why certain nations wield the power that they do because they possess the threat of death more than any other. But you see, God took his people to the shores of the Red Sea with the Egyptians bearing down upon them so that we all, so that you today could know that he is the God that even here can save. Even amidst the terrifying threat of death, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to be afraid because he is the God who makes a way through the sea. He is the one who can take us through deep waters. He is Yahweh, the God of salvation. But the way he brings it is often very different than what we would expect. Because, okay, think about what happens next to you. Okay, so in verse 13, Moses responds to the people crying out to them and to their terror. And he says this in verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And I know that when we see those words or hear them read, it looks like, it sounds like the perfect response from Moses. And in many ways, it is. It is full of faith. And there's a lot of things he's saying there that are right. But I want you to notice, what does Moses think is going to happen here? How does he expect this salvation is actually going to come? What he thinks is going to happen here is that they are going to be equipped by God to beat the Egyptians. He thinks it's going to be a military victory where God will fight on behalf of the Israelites. And remember, back in 1318, we read this verse. It said the Israelites left Egypt ready for battle. That is what Moses thinks needs to happen here. Just trust God, and God will fight for them. So he calls on them, stand firm. Hold the line. Don't be afraid. Be still, and you will see God fighting for you. Which, of course, makes complete sense. Because that's often how we think God should save us. When we are in the hardest spots, when enemies press in upon us, when death comes to our door, when sickness overtakes our body, when the pressures of life weigh us down, we look for God to give us strength to win, to be healed, to make it through. That is what Moses expects at this, at this moment. But God responds to Moses in verse 15. And think about it, when you see these words, what's the tone that God has here? Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. God's like, what are you doing? Keep going. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to the divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, what God is saying here is a bit of a rebuke to Moses. Because he's saying, what are you doing? Why are you stopping? Why are you more afraid of the waters? What? 
Do you think death is more powerful than me? That the deep waters are too much for me to bear? Keep going. I will make a way through the sea. Do not be afraid of death. Enter into it, and it will not overwhelm you. I will take you through, and in so doing, your enemies, your oppressors, your enslavers, they will be defeated. You see, what Moses thinks needs to happen here is that God is going to enable his people to be better at wielding the weapon of death against their enemies. That victory will come through the normal means of our world. That victory will come to us through us fighting our way through and avoiding the deep waters. But God's victory, his salvation of his people, a salvation that was not just for them, but was for us to see as well, to know Yahweh, to know who he is. It is a salvation. It is a victory that comes through him taking us through the deep waters and bring us out the other side. One where he takes his people through the sea with, as it says in 1422, a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left, all the way to the shores of life, where their enemies can no longer touch them, for they've been swallowed up by the sea. You see, that is the salvation that is not only given to God's people in the Exodus, but that is the salvation that's offered to us all. It is a salvation that doesn't enable us to be stronger than anyone else, to be mightier than anyone else, to triumph over anyone else through our own might. It does not win through normal means. It is one where God takes us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from Pharaoh to him. It is one that is offered even more fully to us because of Jesus Christ. Because you see, as amazing as this salvation was, as amazing as the Exodus was, it was still incomplete. Yes, the Israelites were taken through the deep waters, through the threat of death, but this event was a shadow of what was to come. For these people still died. Death had been defeated, but not fully. It still reigned. God had merely shown that he was the one who would one day completely overthrow it. Unless when we look at the Exodus, it's not simply us looking back. We are meant to look forward. We were meant to look for a second, for a greater Exodus. And that's what God has done through Jesus Christ. But he did it, not through Jesus being the one that the disciples thought he was supposed to be. Not through him being a military king, but by Jesus submerging himself into death for us. See, the disciples, they were like Moses. They thought that it had to come actually to this military victory. They were looking at the Roman Empire that was oppressing them, and they thought, that's who Jesus needs to defeat. He needs to conquer the Roman Empire, and then we can sit beside him on his right hand and on his left in his glory. In fact, that's exactly what James and John, in Mark chapter 10, they come to Jesus and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, can we sit with you in your glory, on your right hand and on your left? They want to sit beside Jesus in the places where the water sat as the Israelites walked through. But do you know what Jesus says back to them? He doesn't say, hey, we'll get there eventually. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or can you be baptized 
with the baptism I am baptized with. Because what Jesus is actually saying to them is you still don't get it. You're like Moses at the Red Sea. You don't get what it means for me to be in glory. You don't get that for me to actually conquer our enemies means not just to kind of defeat them in one battle. It actually means to take out the ultimate enemy, the one that if it is crushed, there is nothing that can threaten us at all. It means taking out death. But to do that, to take out death, I can't avoid it. I must go through it. I must drink the cup that's before me. I must be baptized with the baptism God has called on me to have, which is to be submerged into death. It is to actually hang on the cross, on a cross with two others beside him, one on his right hand and one on his left. But that act of being submerged into water, of being baptized into death, is exactly how the New Testament has proclaimed to us. He has crushed it under his feet. And he's called on us that if you want that victory, if you want that salvation, follow me through those waters. Let me take you to life through the waters of baptism, through the waters of going into death and coming out into life. And that's what he's offered to all of us. Guys, that is the God of this world. One who came to save by actually conquering death, by entering into it and coming out the other side. And he said to each one of us, follow me there. So again, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you came here this morning, you're curious about who he is, but you would not follow, you do not follow him. I would just want to say to you who he is is the one who's gone into the grave for you. The one who hung on a cross for you. Who went through the deep waters for you so that he could take you through as well. And if you will follow him, follow on that path, he will give you that salvation. And if you are, brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, may we continue to know this. The great enemy, the great enemy of us all, It's been crushed by him. And one day, one day when he returns, we will actually be able to join our voices together and say, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We feel it right now. We feel it when we see our brothers and sisters go into the grave. That is the sting of death, but one day it will be gone. For there is a God who can take us through deep waters. May we cling to him. May we proclaim him. May we show him to others. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son. Thank you that because of him, Lord, we do not need to be enslaved, Father, to our fears. We don't need to follow the ways of this world. We can follow your ways because, Lord, Your son has made us a child of God because he went through the deep waters for us. Father, I pray for every single person here, Lord, may we all cling to this. May we know this. May you open all of our hearts and our eyes to see the glory of what your son has done for us. 
May we hold to that because you have held to us. Father, may we praise you right now with our voices. But give us an ability, Father, not just to do that now, but to walk out of the service and praise you with our lives, to proclaim and practice the living Christ, the living Christ who's gone through the waters and come out alive so that the world could know that there is something stronger than death. There is something stronger than sin. They do not get the last word. And that something has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. May we know him. May we cling to him. And may we show him to others so that they might know him as well. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.